Hello everyone and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Niklas Servos, and with me in the studio this time is Henrik Andersson. Henrik was here recently to speak with Cole Smead. Welcome back, Henrik. Thank you very much. Now I ought to be a little bit more warmed up, right? I certainly feel um, ready to go and I'm very excited about today's conversation, which I uh, very much believe will be a great one and introduce some fresh perspective to our listeners. And in this episode, we're speaking with Paddy Hogan, head of investor relations at Oryx. Henrik, you have followed Oryx for some time. Can you give us an introduction, please? Sure. So Oryx is a Japanese corporation founded in 1964. So in those 59 years uh, since it was uh, founded, they have grown into global enterprise engaged in a diverse range of businesses, including finance, investment, life insurance, banking, real estate, environment, and um, last but not least, the original business of leasing. So Oryx is actually an amalgamation of the words original and flexible, which uh, certainly touches a nerve with me being an owner of fair and friendly acquisitions or more known as Fairfax. The company certainly seems to have a special culture and purpose around it, where the longstanding CEO Makato Inoue plays an important role, similar to perhaps Bruce Flatt at Brookfield or even more pertinent for today, uh, Steve Schwartzman at Blackstone. And Paddy has chosen the book What It Takes by Stephen A. Schwartzman for today's conversation, which is a biography of him focused on his firm Blackstone. We get to learn more about the founding of the firm, its challenges and successes, the corporate culture and Schwartzman's endeavors within politics and philanthropy. A large part of the book is also about Schwartzman's views on managing people, which may not be as which may not be strange as running a business such as Blackstone entails having strong people skills. What it takes was published in 2019 and we are delighted to d- discuss it with the head of IR at Oryx. Here comes our conversation with Paddy Hogan. Hi Paddy and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on and thank you for taking the time. Where are you located today? I'm located in New York um, this morning. And to begin, can you tell our listeners a little bit about you? Certainly. Um, My name is Paddy Hogan and my role is um, head of um, investor relations at Oryx. Oryx is a a Japanese company. listed in on both the Tokyo and New York Stock Exchange. And my role as investor relations is really to promote and advocate for the company without external stakeholders. Um, I'm based out of New York, but have lived and spent much of my career in Tokyo. And in today's conversation, we will discuss the book, What It Takes. Why have you selected this book? Um, I think it's a great, anyone interested in finance, my background prior to joining Oryx, I spent nearly three decades on Wall Street um, at sort of investment banks, most recently Deutsche Bank and prior to that um, Merrill Lynch. Anyone interested in finance or leadership, I think can um, really um, utilize and enjoy this book. Um, you know, Steve Schwartzman was obviously a fantastic academic student, a great success in his early Wall Street career. Um, and then, as frankly, built, you know, arguably the most famous uh, alternative asset manager globally. And the book, as you said, is a biography of Stephen Schwartzman. Can you tell us a bit more about him? Well, as I said, he's he's born in relatively modest middle class um, background, but he has his claim to fame is he was obviously a brilliant student. He did very well on Wall Street at Lehman Brothers and rose to a, a an impressive level in his mid-30s and then rather than sort of reap that success um, he and his mentor uh, founded an asset management company um, called Blackstone and really initially it was it was difficult um, asset management companies are simple are very pretty sim- simple companies to analyze from outside but they require uh, people, fiduciaries, to give them money and and trust. And I think he was a relatively new uh, 
newcomer to this field. And there are some lessons about his tenacity in terms of raising money um, and searching for that initial um, validation from third party or external clients. And then the great success. Um, and Blackstone, as I said, is a household name. But so I think lots of lessons to be learned in terms of finance, in leadership, in corporate culture. And as I said, I'd recommend it to really anyone interested in finance or investing. And uh, I think one uh, aspect in the book that was especially interesting, maybe for me and Henrik, is uh, corporate culture, as we are are both passionate and, and understand the I mean the value of that for a business. Uh, and what we get to understand is, I mean, one example is that Blackstone is really laser focused on only hiring the best people, what they deem as as tens. How do you manage to employ the best people at Oryx? Um, well, I think every company is different, and I think as you as you become larger, I'm not sure if it. I, if Mr. Schwartzman or his current president John Gray were on this call, they might admit as they become larger, it's hard to find tens each time. And also, a ten in the Tokyo office of Blackstone might be different from a ten in the Mumbai office. You know, there are different skills. There are different. Uh, required uh, in different. Um, operating environments, uh, different cultural sensitivities in different geographies, etc. So I, I think it's important to be flexible uh, in terms of uh, searching for your staffing uh, needs. I think it's important to search for a diverse roster of candidates um, for every position. Uh, I think it's well proven um, that diverse a diverse workforce is a better workforce. It's a more innovative workforce. And I notice in recent times, if you look at the management team for, uh, at Blackstone from a gender perspective, and I'm sure, you know, although in his chairman role, Steve is less day to day, but I'm sure his fingerprints over it. If you look at the senior management Blackstone, there are many very qualified um, females in senior executive positions. Another thread that runs through the book is uh... I mean, Steve Schwartzman's focus on succession, and I wanna—I'm interested to to learn about that a bit more for for Oryx, and and not only on the top level, but actually on—I mean, on every leadership role, for example. I mean, how do you how do you think about succession in in your company, which is really people? I mean, it's so impo- it's so important with the people aspects in in your type of business. It's it's super important. Um, and just by stepping back, you know, to talk about staffing and Oryx, Oryx, I said, you know, is a financial services company based out of Tokyo, but we've operations in almost 30 countries. We employ about 32,000 people, um, about a quarter of which are outside Japan. So we have a very diverse uh, labor force globally. Uh, we, you know, as is traditional for Japanese companies, a lot of our staff are rotated every four or five years to different departments or uh, you know different geographies and that builds um, and that's quite unique amongst Japanese companies but it builds general management talent you know the ultimate successor or to our current CEO Mr. Inoue needs to be someone that has perhaps worked in different functions uh, different divisions worked in different geographies um, because we're a complex company, 40% approximately of our earnings are from sort of overseas. So I think to run a company as broad as Oryx with many divisions, many geographic locations, really does lead to a qualified roster of clients. While Blackstone is an asset manager, primarily using its external funds, but obviously there is some proprietary partner capital there, they're involved in a very diverse uh, array of investments, infrastructure, private equity, real estate, um, direct alternative managers. Where, if you look at our business, it's similarly diverse, perhaps more diverse. We have exposure to asset classes like they have, private equity, real estate, infrastructure, but also other things like aircraft leasing. We own a bank, we own an insurance company. How does one individual, you know, assimilate the competencies to run a business as diverse as that. Well, clearly, uh, I think job rotation uh, via the Japanese uh, format of sort of every four or five years taking on a new assignment gives you a diverse set of experiences. That's important. But then I think it's um, trust in your 
line manager management teams on the ground. You have, and I think there's a blend in Oryx, which is sort of quite interesting um, that we've realized for that we need sort of almost two types of professionals. We need subject matter experts hired into insurance from outside. That person is an in, an insurance expert. Fantastic. We also need this, uh, you know, as I, I describe them, a cadre of generalists who are general managers who can work in different departments and have perhaps better management skills, but not necessarily the sort of deep vertical expertise for a particular industry. So I would say, how do we develop that? Look, I think HR in any financial services company where the greatest asset is, is the people, um, the talent that goes up and down in the elevator has a huge role to pay, huge role to play. And I think it's a it's assimilating a small, you know, those generalist managers, they could be, you know, in the, in our case, probably 400-ish, and you're developing that sort of talent and pushing them to a different level, giving them a different experience. Okay, he or she was great in corporate financial services. How would they fare in sort of auto running, auto leasing in Australia or aircraft leasing in Dublin? You know, are, are those skills transfer? And I think develop, de- talent development is in- incredibly important. And look, I think that goes into training, both internal, external training, um, but also just managing uh, people's careers. And I think, again, Japanese companies benefit, um, and it's changing a little bit, but often from the longevity if you are, of uh, people's careers. Many people join Japanese companies and stay for their whole career. That's great because it encourages investment on the, uh, on the employer's part. But I think it's also important to bring in talent from overseas, the subject matter experts that I alluded to, because, you know, that's how you keep fresh, you know. And what I think is very interesting about Oryx is the willingness to um, to hire from outside. So if I look at the last fiscal year, for example, at Oryx, about 60% of the new recruits came from outside. That's pretty unique. If Typically, if you look at a Japanese company, um, most of the recruits that came are new employees in the prior year joined on April 1st. They were new graduate trainees. Look at the board of a typical Japanese company and you will see, you know, joined 1989, joined 1985, joined 1979 and have risen through the ranks. And that's good in terms of an individual corporate culture. But in a world where companies have to adapt Um, and there's a ton of external forces and changes out there and a world where companies are competing in many different geographies and markets, I think having having a sort of diverse pool of talent and and a willingness to embrace best practice from outside only makes the um, company a stronger one. That's really interesting. One one thing that uh, I want to follow up on is, uh, I mean, you mentioned decentralization. I just want to understand the, I mean, how Japanese companies in general i mean how decentralized they typically are compared to maybe u.s companies or 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 companies in europe and maybe maybe talk about i mean where where you are at at oryx in that aspect as well as a company grows and builds up regional offices and has an increasing amount of its business cross-border you have this challenge of how do you manage that from headquarters there's a certain element of delegation of authority to regional offices, to regional managers, but at the same time, you need central risk controls. Um, it's a real balance. Um, and, but a couple of things, and this is, you know, partly why, uh, you know, um, there is a parallel with Blackstone. Oryx does have very strong leadership centralized in uh, Tokyo. There is an investment committee, so any new investment or project uh, being considered is scrubbed at the office of the CEO and then presented to um, the CEO's uh, investment committee. The CEO chairs the investment committee, meets three times a month. And that centralization of capital allocation is very important. I think it's not dissimilar at Blackstone where Steve Schwartzman and now perhaps today, uh, his uh, president, John Gray, oversee uh, an investment committee. So as ideas are presented, um, someone can say, well, that's really interesting, but did you check with so-and-so in the London office because we did something similar um, you know, 18 months ago? 
And then you actually have knowledge management um, across the organization. And more importantly, the proposer of that project or deal then checks with the London office and maybe a bigger or better deal comes back. And so I think that centrality of capital allocation, that centrality of uh, the investment committee is uh, you know, common at both Blackstone and common at Oryx. And I do think it leads to you know, shared knowledge. It does lead to better thought out transactions and projects. But I do think to what I said a moment ago, I think there's a balance between delegation of authority and uh, central central governance. I think you know head office needs to be able to run the governance functions on a global basis, um, but it also needs trust with its regional leadership that they are in, in compliance with sort of global standards um, and more importantly internal uh, company directives and standards. But I do think the centralization of capital allocation, that central investment committee where best ideas are shared, discussed, and approved. I think is is common to both companies, and I do, I, I do think ultimately trust uh, is developed. You know, the CEO's office in Tokyo, uh, in the case of Oryx, develops trust with the track record and process of, say, our our Irish division, which would handle aircraft leasing. So perhaps their limits, their delegations of authority, are sort of in, are enhanced over time, although we're pretty consistent across the world in terms of an equity or a debt limit. But I do think it's there's an element of trust and communication. And ultimately, I think the regional office manager or the, you know, uh, the overseas uh, representative needs to be proactive in communication back to head office. And that's the same for any, co- for any company. I think it's, um, it gets very close to what you talked about, Patty, in, in terms of, of um, really trying to, to uh, teach or, or bring about more people by, you know, by surfacing around in the organization, by, by learning how to, um, how to prioritize capital allocation, how these different businesses are run and how they are um, managed what uh, you know the nuances of each business because if you haven't seen it all then it's tough to to choose between each and every one right so capital allocation i guess is one of those things where it's it's um it's hard to 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 learn it just by sitting next to to someone you got to learn it by by uh, seeing success or failure in in each of the businesses that you are are then uh, so sort of finally um appointed to to run and it's i guess it's it's hard for any business with with the capital allocation perspective first and foremost to 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 find a successor to it could be schwartzman it could be bruce flat or it could be warren buffett or it could be your ceo that's the challenge right with Taking a successful business and then and then making it um, another twenty five thirty years, right? Yes, um, I do think Heinrich. Though I think it's important to have if you have consistent um, hurdle rates, invest consistent uh, investment return uh, requirements. That's helpful. So how do you compare? You know, how do you compare investing in Indian renewables to U.S. commercial real estate? They're very different um, asset classes, um, but I think if you're disciplined, well, we have these certain hurdle rates. What is the you know over a certain period? What do you, what what sort of return are you looking? And then ultimately, capital should go where it's best treated. You know, um, you know where return you know where return requirements are visible or more visible. And obviously, return is always kind of measured against the risk implicit. But I think if you're clear in terms of you know, this is what we're looking for in certain projects. In Oryx's case, we look for a 15% internal rate of return over a five to seven year period. And we'd like projects to be 10% ROE accretive, 3% ROA accretive. So, you know, I think in the Indian renewables case, so the US commercial real estate, you know, the individual who's bringing that project is looking at their potential returns. And that's a first you know, if you like screen test in terms of our tripwire in terms, are the returns there? Um, and then helps to compare different projects in different geographies at the same time. 
I think another part of uh, of the corporate culture in uh, in Blackstone that that Schwarzman brings up is that uh, he really, I mean, focusing on having really beautiful spaces for the for the offices that they have around the world. Uh, he thinks that that attracts the best people, and in turn, that far exceeds the cost. I mean, how do you think about this at Oryx? Because I, I mean, me and Hendrik are. I mean, used to. Fo- I mean, we like companies that that are are frugal, and uh, we celebrate, for example, Tom Murphy if, in capital cities for his decision to only paint the part of the building that faces the road. <laughs> so that's a quite a huge distinction from from what Schwarzman uh, did at Blackstone. Um, well, I think a couple of things. First of all, remember Blackstone, and we're talking. Uh, a- about a fantastically successful company. So I think it is not a, appropriate to really criticize anything that Blackstone has done. Their track record speaks for itself. But remember, Blackstone is built on third party or external funds. So I guess there's two, there's, there's twin rationales for having the, the glossy office. One is if you're an in potential allocator, think if you're a guy, Um, a state pension or a university endowment or an insurance company thinking of allocating money to Blackstone, perhaps visiting a very nice office and seeing, you know, what clearly is a successful practice is inspiring, you know, Um, and because you're effectively allocate, you're a fiduciary in in that case, be it the insurance CIO or the CIO of the university endowment, you are allocating your your individual retail clients, our students, our staff, pension, money, you're operating as a fiduciary. So clearly going to a, an impressive office may well inspire confidence, you know, and just think of you as an individual, if you went to a doctor in a rundown office or a doctor in a, a very clean and shiny clinic, you'd be more encouraged and more inspired. So. I think that's imp- an important point to stress that you know they are reliant on external uh, investors, uh, and I think having an impressive office to um, present to in- uh, potential investors and clients probably does help. I think it's also clearly in the current environment uh, with people opting to work from home, perhaps having a nice office, a welcoming environment, and look, there's been lots of studies uh, on this. I think in encourages more office participation so i look i i note the reference to the frugal office i think at oryx we have moved into a new building in the last 18 uh, months Um, i think it has a lot of the features of that new buildings now have in terms of you know potential mobile desk positions Cafe, nice nice coffee shops, a cafeteria. Um, it's well well lit. It encourages dialogue and standing up or in small cubicles and environment. Um, so I think it's very important for the office to have to be welcoming as a play to bring people back. You know, and I think we can talk to work from home and what it means. But I think also if you're reliant on external capital, if you're reliant on investors on clients um, having an impressive office inspires confidence about the success and the durability of the company that you're that you are so i think it's important so look i don't you know there's a balance between a smart welcoming office and extravagance so uh, you know and i i i would like to think oryx as a typical japanese company probably errs on the frugal side of that balance uh, but i think if you ever have co- or any of your listeners have occasion to visit our offices they certainly wouldn't be described as shabby but nor would they be described as ostentatious or overly luxurious <laughs> you know i think we get the balance right <laughs> okay great so then i think we have covered a bit on uh, i mean corporate culture aspects on employees and also on customers but one aspect that's quite often forgotten I think is is the shareholders because I think if you have the right shareholders that also impacts the the corporate culture of, of a business and it it's I don't know what comes first and maybe that's what we what, what we should discuss but just look at Berkshire Hathaway and and the following they have and the I mean 
enforcement of really long-term thinking that that uh, that they have created. Uh, I was just when I read the book. I mean, Schwartzman brings up that at the time of of their IPO, he wrote in the prospectus that the common units should only be bought by investors who expect to remain unit holders for a number of years. And I was just thinking, uh, I mean, how do you work on on getting the the best investors you can pe- possibly get at Oryx that really, I mean, understand your philosophy and and think long term as you do? Well, I think anybody doing my job, investor relations for a public company, um, searches and hopes for longer term shareholders who will buy into the strategic vision of the company and buy and hold the the shares for a very long time. Why? Because, you know, that's patient capital that reduces the volatility on the stock uh, in terms of trading. Um, So I think whether your company is a very cyclical technology company or a new emerging software as a service company that is unproven business model wise or a stable um, utility, all listed companies aspire for long uh, for long term shareholders. All public companies want that patient capital. So I think it's important to um, demonstrate a track record that attracts that type of patient capital, you know, so. You know, when we think about and look, there's many types of capital um, and many types of investors. And I think the world has changed. And I think investor relations officers, people doing my job need to adjust with shorter term horizons. That could be retail uh, investors. It could be sometimes, you know, uh, hedge funds are mischaracterized as, you know, short term. Many are very long term. That is true. There's increasingly quant our film. Uh, factor trading in markets. Um, so while all IROs, investor relations office, search patient capital, um, you know, I think it's important to recognize there are many types of investors with um, many different um, investment horizons. And even that patient capital, which is often value driven, if the stock appreciates over time, the stock may well attract a um different investors. And I think there's a, a life cycle or life cycles in the shareholder base. Certain investors are, may be shareholders for the very long term. Others have certain price bands or price ceilings that if and when reached, they will be selling um, the shares. But how do you attract patient capital long term investors, such as Mr. Schwarzman says that he would like at the time of the IPO? You know, a new company at IPO is unproven as a public company. It typically uh, uh, is priced at a discount um, to peers to make it attractive on on day one. But then it's really about demonstration of a track record. And Oryx was founded in 1964 and has been profitable every single year since. So that's impressive. So when I meet a new uh, potential investor or uh, someone who is looking at Oryx with fresh eyes, Wow, you're ostensibly a financial services company, 8591 listed in Tokyo, and you've been profitable every single year for 58 years. That even during the years of the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, that gives me a certain confidence. Oh, I look at the dividend and it's increased tenfold over uh, since the financial crisis. Every single year is raising. That's very good. There's, there may be volatility in earnings, but the dividend rises each year. Um, so I think it's about track record. Um, and I, I think, you know, you referenced Berkshire Hathaway. I think most people, um, who are invested there are investing in the track record of the company, which has been earned over a very long time. You know, the allocator at the pension fund or the university endowment or the insurance company wants to sleep at night probably investing in, you know, Berkshire Hathaway and the track record earned over a long time helps them sleep at night. So I think at Oryx, yes, we want to attract long-term capital. Uh, we want to attract patient investors who will stick with us over the time and we, uh, over over cycles. And we would point to our, you know, track record, which I referenced earlier. But at the same time, we're, you know, we think our stock is cheap. Uh, and we also think there are many types of investors. So we should, you know, in my job, certainly entertain and be willing to speak to all types of uh, investors. Um, 
and who who may have different horizons or different return goals. Over time, a company gets the shareholders it deserves, right? I don't know who said that, but it's uh, these quotes get uh, sometimes thrown around, and you're not sure who said it first time, but uh, that's one one thing um, to hold on to. I uh, I guess. I, no, absolutely. Look, I I think um, I think that's probably true, um, but at the same time, I think there are there are many public companies. And there are many potential investments competing. So I think a proactive um, investor relations strategy is good for um, reaching out to investors who may not know your company um, and encouraging people to take a look. You know, investors are, you know, fund managers um, like yourself, Heinrich, are very busy. You know, you're looking at lots of potential investments on any on any single day. You don't have the bandwidth to look at everything. So I think to get on your radar screen, the investor relations uh, executive, even if they are representing a company with a very long-term successful track record, needs to be proactive. I also think that the simplicity of the business model is important. I think investors buy what they understand. Um, so being able to explain the company um, and perhaps compare it to other companies is also important. When you um, uh, meet an, it could be a new investor, it could be someone who, who knows you uh, well, and, and you go through the, it's an impressive fact in terms of profitability every year since, since foundation and so forth, and not only th- through the Lehman crisis, but also uh, Japanese homegrown crisis in the late 80s right uh, it 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 says obviously in of itself that that the culture and and the discipline has been has been good historically what uh, foundations or what uh, major pieces of the puzzle would you say that describes oryx today what what's the culture foundation for for making another uh, 40 50 successful years down the road Look, I, I think there's something. If you read Mr. Schwartzman's book on the inside, uh, in the inside uh, flap, um, his single mantra is "Don't lose money." Oryx, I'm sure, has uh, on occasion lost money on individual projects, but we don't like losing money, so that's very important. Um, and there is a difference. Steve Schwartzman and Blackstone are mainly investing with other people's money. Historically, Oryx has been investing its own principal capital and it's a public company it's effectively shareholders capital so we take a great responsibility on being price disciplined on looking for those investment returns not straying um you know we have our clear hurdle rates of return um i would say oryx is um also look constantly looking for the new opportunity that is adjacent to a current era of expertise so there are many things out there you know, many of them led by technology that are new, but we don't have expertise in that. But when I look at Oryx, the expertise over the years has been sort of ability to price risk well and to be disciplined and patient allocators of capital in certain areas. And if we see an opportunity in an area adjacent or complementary to us, we can move quickly. And when I think about the history of Oryx, there's many cases where we've been early into a new market. Again, that is it we think is it relatively adjacent to our uh, existing expertise. So we don't think it's a big risk or a big leap. If we're not terribly certain, we'll bring in expertise or partners. Um, so when I think about the history of Oryx and the ability for Oryx to, if we were having this conversation in 40 years, to still be here and be a successful enterprise in 40 years, I, I am confident that pricing discipline and a desire not to lose money uh, will be very important. But let me give talk a little bit about moving into areas of um, ex- adjacent expertise. So when I look at the history of Oryx, I like to think that with any asset class, Oryx has moved from a lessor or financer capacity to then an operator capacity and then to an investor capacity. And let me explain what I mean. Say, take real estate. Initially, we financed condominium buildings. Pretty simple. You know, we're lending money, you know, and we're arranging, you know, financing for you, Heinrich, to buy a condominium and we call that broadly residential real estate. 
Then we got into managing those condominium buildings on behalf of you know uh, inve investors, and that's great. That's property management fees, etc. And then we got into the investing stage of buying and selling real estate, and it's sort of as a lessor or a financer initially, you learn the cash flows, the risk inherent in the in in the asset class, and then you're much better to move into an operator stroke investor capacity, able to price that risk. Take aircraft leasing, a business we've been in for over 30 years, similarly, initially leasing aircraft, organizing the financing of aircraft. Now we manage a fleet on behalf of third-party investors. Very nice, durable asset management fees on that, but we buy and sell about 100 aircraft as well, booking investment gains each year. So that's interesting, lessor to operator to investor. Then I think about areas adjacent, uh, giving the real estate example, we were domiciled and born in Osaka. Um, so when the first opportunity came to manage an airport concession rights came for Osaka Airport, that was natural. We had hotel and real estate expertise and Kansai International Airport uh, in Osaka is next door. We should be involved and we bid and we were the, that was the first airport concession rights. But we know what we don't know. So we invited Vanchy Airports of France to work with us. Um, so bringing in that skilled operator, that is one of Oryx's greatest investments. Now today, um, Oryx is in the throes of bidding for the first integrated resort um, ever in Japan. It would be located on reclaimed land in Osaka. So you could have a situation, well, fantastic. Again, Oryx leveraging its real estate and hotel expertise, but potential customers flying into Kansai Airport um, being entertained or, you know, for leisure activities in integrated resort co-managed by Oryx. But Oryx doesn't know that much about managing a casino. So again, bring in expertise in the face of MGM, a partner. So ability to learn as a, as a lessor or financer before becoming an operator or investor. So that's discipline um, and patient ability to move into an adjacent area, but also willingness to sort of say we should bring in a partner where it's we're going to work in an area where we don't have subject matter expertise. And I think the example of Vanchi Airports at Kansai International Airport and MGM for the management of the or the operations of the integrated resort shows a humility, a good humility at Oryx that, yes, we want to move into adjacent areas and we want to chase good investment opportunities. But if we don't know what we don't know, we should bring in appropriate expertise. And when you when you find this uh, potential opportunity that that you that you believe will give you that uh, IRR of of fifteen percent or, or more, uh, I'm curious to know how you think about uh, how you size these different bets, so to speak. Our hero Charlie Munger is famous for saying that if you find a great idea, bet big. And similarly, Schwarzman writes, "I see a unique opportunity and I go for it with everything I have." So what's Oryx's take on position position sizing? Um, I think we're a Japanese company, so we will never be so aggressive. Also, uh, and let me let me give a little bit of historical context. While it remained profitable, Oryx had a challenging financial crisis. It had about 40% of its assets or balance sheet assets in one asset class, real estate. And obviously, real estate prices collapsed. Um, and we had a lot of relatively short-term financing, so duration uh, uh, mismatch. So I think we'll be cautious um, and probably not bet the house on a particular opportunity. And there, I think, perhaps lies the merits of the diversified portfolio. So we have 10 segments, which is often can optically confusing for someone looking at Oryx for the first time. But what comes across is the relative stability in earnings. So if one segment is, is suffering or struggling, um, as say in the recent COVID crisis, aircraft leasing was not a good business to be in, but other, some of our other more you know, businesses that were more stable um, continue to drive that overall stability in earnings. So it is true, I've worked in uh, with my prior employers and trading floors, and people will say, when you have that opportunity, you size your position. Um, I think we will make big investments. Look, we just made the largest ever domestic private equity transaction uh, in Japan in buying a company called DHC Cosmetics 
and it was a, the sticker price, their flagship price was 300 billion yen. But, you know, for a company with segment assets of about 11 trillion yen, that was still relatively small. So in terms of, you know, that outsized position that would put the company at risk, no, I think we've learned our lessons. And also, I think there's um, a prudent responsibility to and commitment to the more diversified model. Right. You could uh, say that you're in the corner of to finish First, you must first finish rather than back up the truck in, the, in that sense, <laughs> right? It, very, very true. Yes. <laughs> so uh, another very interesting part of the book, which uh, is mentioned uh, a couple of times, I believe, is that um, Schwarzman says that Blackstone has never been a hostile buyer. And given the fact that this could could be said be more part of Japanese culture rather than U.S. culture to, to some extent. I'd be curious to hear your and Orx's take on on um, on acquisitions and and hostility or friendship. I I think it's a very topical subject in Japanese finance at the moment um, because the Japanese stock market, in simple valuation terms, is relatively inexpensive, and there's been I suppose an increase in activism type activity or engagement investing um, in Japan. Um, we also, we Oryx have have taken over public companies. Daikyo springs to mind, the condominium company that used to be listed, 8840. We are currently linked with a bid for uh, Toshiba. Um, we are a part of the Japan, the JIP, Japan Investment Partners bid for Toshiba. Um, and we would not be, uh, which actually, by the way, has been welcomed. That bid has been approved by the Toshiba board. So we would not want to be uh, associated with, quote unquote, a hostile bid. Part of that is, I think, about, you know, Oryx is one of Japan's more famous brands. We've been around, as I said before, since 1964. We'd like to be around for another 59 years. And I think that type of hostile activity um, would would not endear ourselves to our stakeholders. Um, but, uh, and most of our acquisitions have been in the private space, just simply because, you know, a hostile takeover in the public space usually requires a premium. And Oryx, like your hero at Berkshire, likes to buy cheap and sell rich. I think it's important for tenure I welcome what the Tokyo Stock Exchange is doing in terms of shining a, a torch on the amount of companies that are trading at discounted valuations and telling companies that they need to understand capital allocation, capital efficiency, um, their cost of capital better. Um, I welcome the increased focus by engagement or activist investors on Japan because clearly there are some very uh, clear cases of companies, you know, uh, public companies not necessarily being run for shareholders of perhaps uh, inefficient capital allocation. That is all good. Um, and indeed, unfortunately, Oryx also has a valuation below one times, one times price to book. But I would not, I would not welcome an increased sort of hostile environment. And certainly we would not be party to that. Um, and I would say, I think what's happening in Japan in terms of potentially increased corporate activity, um, particularly in the private space, um, is an opportunity for Oryx. Oryx is seen as a a very welcome partner. We're a household name. We know we own a, a bank, an insurance company. We own a baseball team. I think if you stopped 100 people outside Tokyo Station and asked them to are they familiar with Oryx? 99 would be, maybe first for the baseball team. So, so I think that type of, you know, national profile, you know, has been earned patiently and we would certainly not to squeak to quander it. But I mentioned a, um, a transaction earlier where we bought a company called DHC, a cosmetics company, um, earlier in the year. We were not the best bid. But let me give you a little bit of background. The founder uh, was 82 years of age. Um, he had founded the company 50 years before. Very successful company. Um, big online presence, but in, uh, international presence too. Very well known in the sort of cosmetics, health supplement um, uh, product area. And he was looking for a succession plan. If he sold his company to a foreign fund, they may look to 
cut SGNA, cut staff, um, build a company, make it more attractive from an operating margin point of view, and then sell it. Um, that's traditionally what private equity investors do. Um, Oryx, because it's not, its Japanese private equity arm is not reliant on public money, can be more patient. It can bring solutions, real estate, staffing beyond just capital. And in this case, the founder of DHC chose to sell to Oryx, even though we were not the best bid. Um, and that's important uh, to underline to your listeners that Oryx, in the third largest economy in the world, is the preferred buyer of private assets. And that's a great, sure, there are many companies, if they were being bought in the United States, that like to be bought by Berkshire, you know, and, uh, and have that Berkshire, um, you know, validation, if you like. And I, I, I think to a certain extent, the greatest challenge facing Japan is demographics, you know, um, you know, it's an aging population. It's been well written that many of these Japanese management teams are old. 80% of Japanese people work for a small and medium-sized company. We're familiar with the Japanese brand names of Hitachi or Sony or, you know, maybe Oryx. Um, but we're not so familiar with that 80% of the Japanese population work for small companies. Oryx's leasing network is 260,000 SMEs. It would be reasonable to think amongst those 260,000 that 1% are managed by a 75-year-old or older executive. That's potentially... A great pipeline of companies that are, are are looking about and wondering about succession. And as I said, the DHC example gives me, you know, great confidence that as an opportunity for Oryx in terms of CEO succession or domestic private equity, it's um it's very exciting and filled with potential. And we are potentially a solution to that um, succession issue. And in the case of DHC, Mr. Yoshida has left. Uh, we promoted the number two. We sent some Oryx staff. We um, brought in a chairman from who was at formerly at Polar Orbis, who would give some, you know, operating and uh, experience to, in the cosmetics world. So, very exciting. And I think again, it's the opposite of a hostile takeover, isn't it? It's but it's being the sort of preferred solution provider for a really big problem in Japan, that of demographics. Yeah. You know? I think you hit on something that that really gets me going and that's I mean in Sweden we have a, a lot of uh, holding companies that buy for keeps I mean they they buy without having an exit strategy and and in the book we also learned that Schwartzman describes how he wanted to diverge from the traditional PE model to invest in companies without an exit exit strategy I'm curious to know your views on on that and how you work at Oryx I think again if you're for domestic private equity, we are using shareholder capital, Oryx principal capital, if you like. Um, so you can be really patient. You can buy and hold. However, you know, listening to what the TSE have been saying, we're a public company. So there's a there's a balance between being efficient and capital recycling and recycling of capital. So um, we are lucky that we can buy with a longer term view than, say, a fund who has set up for five years and needs an exit to monetize certain gains. There are certain businesses we're in that have been in for a very long time, and unless dynamics change, we may still be in those businesses. But I think at the right, you know, we can't ignore market dynamics, industries change, um, pricing changes, and you know, look, we always need to be asking ourselves: just as we might have been the preferred buyer, are we the best owner? You know, so I give you an example: we had bought an accounting software company called Yayawi. Uh, about nine years ago. It's very like Zero in Australia. It does accounting software for very small companies, typically three, four employees. Uh, we had this domestic leasing network, 260,000 SMEs. We thought we could sell accounting software uh, to them. It would be natural. But many of our SMEs, SMEs in Japan can be anything from two people to 2,000 people. Many were a little bit larger, a little bit more sophisticated. Um, and we the synergies that we'd hoped for didn't necessarily come through. Then in the sort of 2019, 2020, 21, obviously there was great excitement about software as a service type uh, companies and many new listings at very high valuations. And we were offered an extraordinary um, price um, very, for, by a US fund. So here a business that we bought with a strategic vision, didn't necessarily realize the synergies, were probably not the best owner and there's a, there's a premium pricing um, 
bid in November 21, we uh, entered a memorandum of sale and our timing was probably very good because probably accounting software companies peaked around that. Yeah. Great. And uh, as uh, this is a book podcast, we like to wrap up with the questions about reading and writing. And we believe that books have something that you can't really get from, from newspapers. And that is knowledge that is able to, to stand the test of time, so to speak. And <laughs> so I, I wonder, what are the reading habits at Oryx like? I, I can't really generalize. I mean, look, I think I can't generalize for the company. And I think every individual is different. Um, uh, you know, I, I do think that we're, we're a financial services company, uh, very diversified. We should clearly be looking at other companies and other industries and trying to learn lessons. But as I said, I don't impose um, reading. I impose on my colleagues and would desire my colleagues to have a desire, have an inherent ambition and desire to, to be aware of changing markets um, and and leadership lessons that can be learned, as you say, from reading. Um, I personally, I loved this book uh, that we started our conversation about. I would encourage people to read books. You know, we're a financial services company that really is more a collection of operating companies. We have sometimes been compared to Berkshire. We've been sometimes compared to Macquarie. Um, I think there are commonalities with Blackstone in terms of central leadership and central capital allocation. But I would encourage people to read uh, books that would help them to do their job better on a personal basis. I read a lot of leadership books, a lot of business books, and particularly, actually, I find um, lessons in a lot of um, my own game is tennis. So I read a lot of books, uh, biographies about um, tennis players and the focus that is required to to win. You know, lots of preparation, lots of training. Um, single-minded focus on on the goal, um, but also cognizant of the team structure that supports the individual. Paddy Hogan, thank you so much for coming on Investing by the Books podcast to talk about what it takes and the investment style at Oryx. Do you have something more you want to add before we finish up here? No, I'm very, very flattered and pleased to be invited. Um, I, I, I think many of your Listeners may not be that familiar with Oryx, but you know, having listened to this podcast, you know, we piqued their curiosity. And if, um, if any have questions, I'm sure you can direct them towards me. Perfect. Thank you so much, Patty. Thank you. Have a good day, guys. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Redeye. Follow us on Twitter at ib underscore Redeye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, We'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.